Welcome to What The Health, a podcast where we explore the key health issues that are often dismissed. I'm James Jensen, a functional medical practitioner and owner of Hella Health, a holistic clinic focused on treating the root cause of issues rather than the symptoms by connecting the dots and giving you practical and evidence-based solutions. And I'm Julie Johnston, one of James's clients, and I also happen to be his PR consultant who, let's be honest, basically strong-armed him into doing this podcast. So if you've been going around in circles, feeling dismissed and not getting the results you deserve, then you're in the right place. Because as you always say, James, just because something is common doesn't mean it's normal. Exactly. So let's drill down to what's really going on. So James, one of the common things that people come to see you for is when they have been doing all the right things to try and lose some weight and it's just not budging and they're feeling quite, you know, frustrated and so they come and have a chat to you. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about that and some of the reasons people are having trouble shifting those kilos? Yeah, so most of the people that I see are people that are frustrated and annoyed with the process. You know, they've often you know started exercising you know they're usually eating fairly well or or they've at least significantly changed some things in their diet for the better and you know some people have even gone as far as you know tracking the calories that they burn with exercise and they're tracking you know the calories that they're eating and they're they're certainly in a calorie deficit and it's just still not happening and I guess I see all the people that are frustrated and and really annoyed and it really comes down to uh, I guess looking outside of the whole calories in, calories out paradigm, which is which is really important, and that's also why it's very frustrating because normal math says if I, you know, if I burn more calories than what I put in, I should drop body fat, but it doesn't quite happen like that. And we see all sorts of handbrakes to weight loss, and that's something that we're really really good at addressing in in particular. And and it's especially frustrating because for most of us, you know, we spend our early 20s where we can kind of eat what we want and, you know, we then do a little bit of exercise and it kind of shifts if we need it to. But, um, you know, there's certainly different stages of life where that gets harder. Can you tell us the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so hormones can play a really big role. So, for example, you know, if, you know, you might have like a uh, like a young girl who's, just started puberty she's now getting surges of hormones like progesterone and estrogen which can often create more weight gain through areas like hips bum thighs things like that so you know they might they you know again probably haven't changed too much in what they're eating but those hormonal signals have increased you know certain bits of weight storage another key time would be perimenopause which is typically where estrogen will surge and again it's the same sort of fat so you know, estrogenic fat is, you know, that hips, bum, thighs and that lower part of the stomach, which women get really frustrated with. And that's, you know, obviously some of the hardest fat to lose, which is why, again, I'll often hear, you know, like a a couple might come in and they say, oh, look, my husband, he just stopped drinking beer and lost 10 kilos and I don't even drink beer and I'm eating, you know, 10 times better than he is and it's just not budging. And, and that's really a good example of how those hormones um, can be a problem. And another key time would also be, so we talked about perimenopause, but also during menopause, so where there's an actual like lack of estrogen. So that lack of estrogen, it creates what we call insulin resistance, which is, I guess it's a form of like pre-diabetes. And it's that insulin, which is one of the storage hormones that's really responsible for causing weight gain around the midsection. So often you'll see with perimenopause, women might get bigger bums, 
and then the bum might shrink with a lack of estrogen and then they start to develop a belly. So their body shape will change just simply through changes in hormones. So it's really frustrating for them. Yeah, and like we were saying, you know, like they can be doing the right things of, of cutting out some of the junk food and, and doing the exercise. Um, and I know for myself, I'm certainly in that age bracket at the moment where I'm finding weight holds more than it used to. Um, I'm lucky enough, I have access to you when I'm walking through the halls. So recently I came back from uh, a holiday. I had been uh, enjoying a bit of the good life, you know, pale ales in the pool and cheese platters and so forth. And, um, you know, everything in the wardrobe was a bit tight. So um, you had some great suggestions for me. So do you want to talk us through some of the things that you do to help release those handbrakes? Yeah, so I think like we spoke about a little bit around hormones. Firstly, I'll always try and get a gauge on on someone's hormones. So, you know, if we're suspecting, you know, that it might be an estrogenic handbrake, you know, usually they'll be coupled with, you know, obviously where the weight distribution is, but certainly might be time of life, you know, sort of anywhere 35 onwards could be perimenopausal. Um, we'll also see usually things like, you know, increased PMS. Um, so in the lead up to a period, women might be, you know, more emotional than they ever have been. You'll often see like heavier periods. So I'll start to go, well, we're looking at estrogenic fat and the time's about right based on their stage of life. And we're also getting other symptoms that indicate that it's probably more estrogen related. So in that case, we're looking at, you know, how do we, modify that estrogen is it about detoxifying estrogen or are there things that we're eating or doing that are increasing that estrogen load so they're things that we would look at again one of those you know maybe to to talk about your case in particular um, we do know that the microbiome say our gut bacteria plays a massive role with weight management and there's really famous studies that date back to you know the 50s so things that we've known for a really long time that our gut bacteria really influence our metabolism and for me, I think that's really a good explanation for why there's some people that eat whatever they like and they are always skinny. And there's people that, you know, struggle and find it really hard or they find it really, really easy to gain weight, even if they're eating quite well. So what we do know is that some of those bacteria can actually, well, they're very, very good at liberating calories from food. So if we've got the wrong microbiome balance, that can often be a, a, a pretty significant driver of weight. So there's species of bacteria called Firmicutes, which can actually liberate up to 20% more calories um, from food than other bacteria. Mm-hmm. When we're born and when we're, you know, getting breastfed, we have lots of Firmicutes, which is why babies are chubby and those types of things in our gut should actually transition away from some of those. So that's why we'll see, you know, some of those kids that might be a bit chubbier, they may not have transitioned their gut. Um, their gut may not have transitioned um, quite so well. You know, another common sort of example is that is someone that might really heavily diet down. So they might, I guess, maybe let's call it like an extreme weight loss where they'll really diet down. And because they've really dropped their calories down, the body adaptively will increase those fumicities to try and, you know, pick up that calorie liberation from food. So then the second that they go off that diet, so say it's like Christmas break and they're mm. like, let's have a few pale owls in the in the pool and you know, eat a few things that we normally wouldn't, all those bacteria, they're waiting, waiting to be fed. So you, it's very, very easy for people to rebound. And so what are the, one of the things that we will often do is we'll look to change that microbiome balance, which is really, really important. And to go back to the rat studies um, that they've done in the, in the sort of 50s and 60s and, and beyond, 
it really comes down to, you know, where they'll get, you know, a fat rat and they'll put the fat rat's poo in the skinny rat and the skinny rat turns into a fat rat and they'll get a skinny rat's poo and they'll put it in a, in a fat rat and the fat rat turns skinny. So, yeah, I always say to people, if there's someone that you really, really like the look of and you think, wow, I'd love to look like that, maybe a poo transplant <laughs> from that person. I, I don't think I'm going to go that far, but I know you do have some other strategies and supplements and things that you can recommend. Talk to us about some of those and how they can help. Yeah, so the research that they've done on those bacteria, again, it's very hard to sort of isolate single bacteria, but one of the main ones that we that we often work with is the Akkermansia species. So the Akkermansia species, you know, in those people that are really fit and healthy, we often see higher populations of those bacteria. So one of the herbs that we often use is berberine. And berberine, it's really cool at sort of eradicating a lot of the bacteria that we don't want, that, you know, some of those formicutes that increase weight gain mm. and they help feed the Akkermansia species. So we love using berberine to help people, you know, shift their microbiome, especially if they're one of those people that, you know, say things to me like, my whole life I've been a little bit bigger, I've always struggled with my weight. So we'll often use that. Um, there's another um, product called Gut Right, which we use as well, which is a bit more of a whole gut type of thing. So it's lots of, I guess we call it herbs and spices, which gives its gives it its distinct flavour, which many people comment on. Yes, you um, put me on to Gut Right, and I have to say the first time I took it, I was cursing you from my kitchen. Um, it, You know, the first go of it is not the most pleasant but I have to say like I got used to it really really quickly um, but I have really noticed the difference on it in terms of like I'm not craving you know some of the sugary kind of foods that I was so it's really actually quite interesting I can feel it working and as I said after that initial first couple of goes at it um, the taste is actually quite fine but you had an interesting reason for why we react so strongly to that first taste. Yeah, so our body doesn't really want us to eat poisons. So, Which is a good thing. Yeah, it's the same way like when you're trying to get a kid to eat vegetables. You know, to the, when the first time they're trying them, they'll often taste poisonous. Mm. But So that's why it takes, you know, somewhere between 10 to 30 tries of something where your body starts to get used to the, I guess, the flavour and the taste and it goes, oh, look, it's actually not trying to kill me. So, um, so that's, I guess it's a protective mechanism, which is something that we want so we don't just put whatever random things in our body and, and think that they taste great. Um, but yeah, it's really, I mean, it's a, it's a great product because what it's essentially doing is it's doing a weed and feed. So for all those people listening that are interested in lawns, it's really about pulling out the weeds. So it's like a bit of a poison in many ways. So it's getting rid of the weeds and it's also feeding the bacteria that we want to have. So again, we're like feeding you know, like a fertilizer for the stuff that we do want and it's eradicating the things that we don't want which is why people see you know certainly they'll see weight loss and they'll also see you know changes in appetite because again those bacteria they're telling us what to do yeah so, so instead of those little gremlin bacteria going feed me feed me um you're getting the good ones saying no no we want the good stuff please exactly yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And, you know, I think most of us in, you know, when you're having struggles with weight loss or perimenopause, menopause, and so you're in that stage of life and you might be Googling some things or your phone's listening in. So I know for me, my social media feed is full of ads for miracle pills and potions that are going to instantly give me a slim belly like
like a 20-year-old. What can you say about um, the difference of some of the, you know, the, uh, those other products on the market uh, compared to some of the things recommended by a health practitioner? Yeah, I think the advantage of seeing someone that, you know, I guess you can talk to is you can really look at your specific symptoms in your specific case. And with that, you can obviously get like a tailored sort of recommendation. So there's people that obviously will be grabbing things that might be, say, like a, a fat burner or, a, you know, a fat blaster type of thing, which may not really be what they need. And most of those products are, you know, not terribly useful anyway. So, again, for me, most of my stuff around weight loss and weight management isn't really about how do we like stimulate fat burning it's really about removing the handbrakes and you know so in a consultation we'll always be talking about things like how are you sleeping what's your stress like you know because those things really make a big impact on weight management so for example if you're not sleeping well you're going to have high levels of cortisol at night which makes you more likely to store belly fat so you know fat and fluid around the midsection you know, and stress does the same thing during the day. So if you've got this continual signal in your body with high cortisol that says store fat, store fluid, store fat, store fluid, you're not going to see the res- you know results that you would from diet and exercise and you're certainly not going to get benefits from some sort of miracle powder or potion. So the way we approach it is really about what are the handbrakes? You know, firstly, are we eating things that we shouldn't be that we thought they were good or, you know, do we need to move more? Remove those handbrakes and that's how people get results. And like an interesting thing that I often explain to people too is if we're also under eating, that can be a, a big problem too. Mm. So one of the things that we will often do is a, a body fat scan, which will give people a basal metabolic rate. So their basal metabolic rate is really saying, what calories am I burning at rest? So for somebody's total metabolism that, you know, for the day that might account for you know, 60 to 80% of their metabolism, actually like eating and digesting and working through the nutrients accounts for about 10%. And then that sort of remaining 10 to 30% is really made up of, you know, exercise. So again, like exercise is really, really important, but of that total breakdown, it's a, it's a smaller percentage. So that's where, you know, what we're eating is really, really important. So we do find that if people are under eating, what will happen is their metabolism will adaptively slow down. So it's going to try and match and meet what you're eating. So, you know, those people that might be 150 kilos plus that we've all seen, you know, on TV that Mm. eat chips and, you know, McDonald's and all, all that stuff all day, those people actually have like technically a fast metabolism. So if they're putting, you know, five, 6,000 plus calories in their body a day, their metabolism is moving through that. Yeah. So those people that are under eating, again, their metabolism will adaptively slow down. So quite often, again, when we've seen people that, let's just say they've changed their diet, they need to lose 30 kilos and they've lost, say, like 10 or 15 or even 20, they often can't get that last sort of 10 off. Mm. And it might be because they've under, you know, they've started to under eat. And so what we do in those scenarios is we get them to reverse diet. So we... Rather than say, look, you really need to be eating two and a half thousand calories and they're currently eating 1,200. If you go from 1,200 calories to two and a half thousand, you'll certainly get fatter and you'll think I'm an idiot and you'll hate me. So what we, the reverse diet is really just slowly stepping those calories back up. So somewhere between 50 to 150 calories a day on top of what they're currently eating. And we do that roughly per week. So 
If the goal is to get them to 2,500, we'll slowly creep that up over weeks and weeks and weeks. During that time, the goal is not to lose weight. It's just to maintain the same weight. And then they've got somewhere to go. So if you're at 1,200, what do you do? You can't eat even less. Mm. You know, that's where you, that's where people are already feeling tired and deflated. And, you know, their, their metabolism is really saying, I like, we're at the bottom. Yep. So that's why we, you know, increase calories. And then you've got that room to do a bit of a calorie drop if that's what you need to do. Yeah. And, and what is your recommendation of how many meals a day people should be eating? Like, should we be eating small meals or should we be eating three good meals a day? What's your recommendation there? Yeah. So most of the time I'll try and get people to focus on three good meals. And the reason is because insulin is a storage hormone. So if we have any element of insulin resistance, which most people do if they are overweight. Um, so what will happen is if your insulin is a little bit too high, which is a storage hormone, so every time you eat, insulin comes out. So if we're eating lots of small meals regularly, we keep saying to the body, store fat, store fat, store fat. So our total calories might be okay, but we keep that signal going. So if we go to three meals a day, we'll, we actually have that opportunity for that insulin to drop back down where your body can access fat burning. So I say to people, eat enough at breakfast that will last you until lunch and eat enough at lunch that will last you until dinner. Mm-hmm. So generally three, three meals a day is good. Again, it depends on the individual. Some people, you know, they, if it is a, about increasing calories for them, you know, ov- obviously we'll get them to eat a little bit more regularly. Like if your goal was to put on muscle or, you know, if you were underweight, that's where I'd say we need to eat more often, you know. But yeah, generally three meals a day is what I would recommend. Yep. And what are some of the common sort of foods that you would recommend people avoid if they are trying to lose weight? Yeah. So again, it, it does kind of depend on where their fat storage is. So if most of the time, if we're overeating carbohydrates, you know, so processed foods like, you know, sugars, you know, soft drinks, you know, anything that's processed technically really um, has that potential to increase weight gain. So we'll often just get people to eat, you know, whole foods. Um, and one of the other things that um, we often get people to do is we get them to sort of track what they're eating and then that way I can have a little bit of a look at some of the foods that they might be, you know, think that might be healthy. For example, I had a gentleman the other day that's eating, you know, seven to eight pieces of fruit thinking that it's healthy. Mm. And yes, you know, fruit is healthy, but it, it also contains lots of natural sugars. So yeah. if you're eating lots of fruit, um, yep, great. We're getting nutrients and those types of things. But again, we might be getting too many of those natural sugars. So even obvious things like, you know, a handful of sultanas, you know, they're quite sugary and can be mm. a real handbrake. So, you know, if, if they're sort of having a, a mid-afternoon snack on, you know, sultanas, they might go, it's nice and healthy, it's yeah. a fruit, but it might be actually kicking them out of fat burning. And I guess that's where, you know, when people are getting frustrated and, and like we said, we feel like we're doing all the right things, having a chat with a health practitioner like yourself is sometimes enough to identify those things that are causing that handbrake, that they're seemingly innocent, but when you're looking at it from a holistic point of view, you go, oh, actually, this here is slowing down this process for you. Yeah. And, you know, I guess on the on the note of, you know, having someone to really look look at, you know, what you're doing. Again, there's many inflammatory foods that people don't realise. So mm. they might have, you know, milk or, or dairy or something like that, which, you know, again, is often touted as like a health food. Yeah. 
Um, but milk has its own growth hormones in it. And if we think about what its job is, it's for babies to turn into, you know, grow bigger and stronger. Mm. So if our goal is to, you know, lose weight, sometimes dairy can be a real handbrake to that, yeah. especially because of those growth hormones. And, you know, if the food that you're eating creates bloating or inflammation, what happens is that little signal of inflammation, it, it's what you call like a cell danger response. So all the cells get this little inflammatory signal and they start to go, uh-oh, there's a problem. So they'll often switch off metabolism. Yeah. So the cells won't be interested because they go, whoa, there's danger here. So again, that's why like if we can stick to whole foods and, you know, look at certain foods that might be creating inflammation, you know, even gluten, same sort of category you know, in, in breads, you know, often it's not the calories or the carbohydrates, it's the inflammatory impact that it's having. So yeah, seeing a practitioner or someone that can really go through your diet and your symptoms makes a massive difference. Yeah, I think there's some really great advice there. And I think, you know, just really, I guess the key message is letting people know that if you have been exercising and you're eating a relatively healthy diet and things like that, but still not getting results, having a chat to someone can help identify those things. And I think when you touched on earlier that there's often things people may not have thought of, you know, such as sleep or stress. And I know, for example, you've had uh, success with some patients where the actual cause has, the root cause has been the stress that they're under. And so you've been able to give them some supplements to help reduce that stress. And that in turn has reduced the stress eating that they're doing so um, it's really fascinating how when you look at it from a holistic point of view you're often able to identify these other little factors or handbrakes as you like to call them that are in fact causing uh, you know that problem with shifting the weight Mm, because again if we're treating holistically yes you might achieve weight loss but we also want people to feel good and feel the benefit I mean there's no point being skinnier and feeling lousy so, you know, if it is about getting sleep going properly and, and as you know, like if we're, you know, sleep deprived and tired and stressed, most people don't go, oh man, I'm so tired and stressed mm. and, you know, can't wait to eat a big bowl of salad and exercise. <laughs> it's usually... Now we're reaching for the chocolate or the beer. <laughs> that's right. So often, you know, the, the very beginning is to get people just to sleep properly before we even look at food. It's like, yeah. let's get your energy right. Let's sleep properly. Let's, you know, get the stress down and then then they have that ability, you know, to do the things that they know they need to do. Yeah. And it all comes back to that healthy gut, doesn't it? And, it, you know, everything just gets better from there, you know, our whole mental health, our ability to do things. So yeah, it's amazing how connected it is. Well, that is certainly fascinating, James, and we would certainly encourage uh, anyone who is having trouble shifting um, that weight and it's really sort of, you know, causing that frustration to book in with a health practitioner such as yourself. Um, So we'll move on now to a couple of frequently asked questions that we have had come through recently. So I've got one here. Hi, James. It doesn't matter how many times a week I work out and eat well. I'm still not losing weight. I keep relying on caffeine to get me through the day. I feel like I just can't win. Why is this so difficult for me? This sounds like uh, every patient I have just about. (laughs) Regular uh, question coming your way. Yeah, so really I guess the answer is all the things that we've been talking about. We'll be, you know, wanting to know, you know, what, you know, are there any nutrient deficiencies, you know, what's sleep like, you know, we're wanting to work out, you know, where that lack of energy is is coming from. So again, if it, you know, if it's something like 
like their thyroid isn't quite right or there's you know malabsorption of nutrients it makes sense that we would try and fix that first one thing on the on the caffeine as well is if people are tired and they're using lots of caffeine that caffeine if it's in excess we talked about cortisol so cortisol one of those stress hormones but caffeine will actually stimulate cortisol as well so for using lots of stimulants just to get mm. through the day that might be creating another handbrake in itself to weight loss yeah so again we'd be sort of looking at it holistically what are the handbrakes here and is it sleep is it stress is it our gut is there a hormonal impact that we need to address so yeah excellent and next question, I just found out I have inflammation in my gut lining. The doctor wants to put me on regular medications for it. Is there an alternative that would support gut health and heal the lining more naturally? Yes, I love this question. Thanks for sending that in. Um, so yeah, gut lining is one of those really interesting things. So I guess it's uh, the terminology leaky gut has been around for some time now. And what I guess the medical term is gastrointestinal hyperpermeability, which is obviously why we say leaky gut, mm -hmm. especially when I'm explaining things. <laughs> but um, yeah, so leaky gut is really referencing an inflammation in the gut. So if you've got inflammation in your gut, you're definitely going to have a leaky gut. And the way I explain it to people, it's like having a house that you can't lock the front door. Mm. So the gut lining's job is really to obviously absorb nutrients and things like that, but it's also a protective barrier between the inside world and the outside world. So if that front door you can't lock or the front or the fence you can't lock the you know the the front fence, what happens is all you get all these little foods and bacteria and the, all these things sort of moving in and attacking or triggering the immune system. So bloating for example is an immune response. So what we try and do with that is put the fence back up or lock the front door. Mm -hmm. So we'll often use things like um, turmeric to reduce the inflammation. Glutamine is really, really good for helping heal and seal that gut lining. Zinc carnosine, which is a special type of zinc, is really, really useful as well. So we do have a few combination products which we'll use to heal and seal the gut lining. And, you know, from my experience, it works really, really well compared to, I guess, some of the more traditional um, things that are offered by the, by the doctors. And I have countless examples of you know, people that have had, you know, say a colonoscopy and they get told that they've got all this inflammation and, you know, things like that, then they'll go for a follow-up colonoscopy and the doctor's mesmerised and blown away with what they've done. They, mm. You know, they'll often say, I don't know what you've done, but your, your gut looks great. It is a bit yellow, by the way. And that's usually from the turmeric, which, you know, as we know, if you're cooking with it, it yeah. can stain, but it can also stain your bowel. Yeah. Fascinating. Wow. And our last question for today, um, I've been working on improving my gut health, uh, but I've just had to go on antibiotics. What should I do to help keep my gut health in good shape? Yeah, so depending on the antibiotic, some are more broad spectrum, which means that they're going to kill lots of bacteria and some are a little bit more specific. Uh, sometimes we can, I mean, a, a lot of people really don't want to use antibiotics. Mm. It's a last resort. But what we'll often do is we'll start to well, it's a key time really because it's a i guess it's a reset opportunity so if we do have some of those bacteria that we potentially haven't wanted it's a great opportunity to sort of feed and you know put the ones in that we do want so depending on on the scenario we might use probiotics but more often than not i'll focus on lots of different fibers so each little bacterial species will be fed by lots of different fibers so you know some might love broccoli preferentially 
you know. So what we do is we'll often use like a multifaceted fiber. So we've got one called paleo fiber, which has 12 different fibers. So with that, you know, variety is the spice of life when it comes to gut. So the more diverse and more variety of bacteria, the healthier our gut is. So I'll often use uh, like what we call a prebiotic. So it's the food that feeds the bacteria. Mm-hmm. So we use a prebiotic fiber, which will start to feed or fertilize all that variety versus just throwing in, you know, like a probiotic, which might have five strains in it. That's not to say that that's bad, but I think we can do it better when we're using those fibers in particular. And so I guess that uh, what that makes me think is, you know, often we reach for something at the supermarket or chemist without asking for advice. So we're like, oh, I'm on antibiotics, I need a probiotic. So I guess the key message there is to actually have a chat to your health practitioner and show them what antibiotics you're actually taking and what's the best course of action for you. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, a wealth of knowledge as always, James. Uh, Thanks for the chat today. Thanks, Julie. We hope you enjoyed this episode of What The Health. If you want to keep hearing more, follow us on the Apple Podcast app, where you'll be notified every week when we drop a new episode. And if you love the show and want to support us, feel free to share this podcast with your friends and family, or go and leave us a review. Yes, please help us make Julie's life easier when she's trying to market this podcast. Of course, it would be remiss of me not to mention that you can go book a consultation in person or online with James to discuss all your health concerns. Head on over to www.hellohealth.au. Plus, you'll get free postage on any products you purchase. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.